You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. Well, good morning. I'm going to welcome you back to your pews. Thanks for greeting one another this morning. Again, my name is Jeremy. I'm the senior pastor here, and I want to welcome you to our church this morning. Both those of you here in the sanctuary, those of you on the live stream, we're glad that you're here. Uh, The way we say our mission as a church, why we exist, is that we exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond. That's why we gather. That's why we're here. We want to have our lives renewed in relationship with Jesus. And so, uh, to that end, I want to just acknowledge that weariness can come from a lot of different places. And you might feel it for any number of different reasons this morning. Sometimes that weariness comes in just a very physical form. Uh, My family has felt this recently. As many of you know, our family is just getting over a bout of COVID. Um, Many of you prayed for us and checked in on us, and we're grateful for that. And we are feeling much better. And so I'm sure many of you will want to ask, how are you guys doing? We're doing much better. Some lingering fatigue. And it's difficult when two parents have COVID and the two youngest boys do not. <laughs> it's a hard dynamic. So, um, but we're doing, we're doing better now. I've had several conversations, even just in the last couple of weeks, with families who have family members, loved ones, who are in the hospital. Some, some for COVID and some for other reasons. Add to that just the reality of January being cold and inside and without the sun, right? These are the realities that January brings. Sometimes weariness comes just from having bodies that simply break down, that grow tired. In response to our weariness, whether that is physical, whether it is spiritual, whether it's emotional or relational, wherever it comes from, Jesus says that we should come to Him and find rest for our souls. We believe that lives are renewed in relationship with Jesus. We believe that. That's why we gather. That's why we worship Jesus, because we really believe that that's true, that it's not just a platitude, it's not just something we say, but we want to meet and be with Jesus together this morning. What matters about us most here is that we love Jesus. Above all other things, we want you to know that we love Jesus, the one who died for us in our brokenness and the one who calls us to come and find our rest and our refreshment in Him. So as we begin, I want to offer you this welcome in the name of Jesus. And many of you hear this each week. Sometimes you hear these words and you think that's somebody else. I just want to acknowledge we all, the the, the things I'm going to describe here in a moment, we all fit into these categories. And so receive this welcome in the name of Jesus. To all of you this morning who are weary and in need of rest, to all who mourn and need comfort, To all of you this morning who feel worthless and you're wondering if God cares about you. To all of you who fail and need strength. To all of you who sin and need a Savior. And to all who hunger and thirst for righteousness and whoever else will come, this church opens wide her doors and offers welcome. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, welcome. We're glad that you're here. And if you would now open in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, that's what will be this morning. So Acts 17, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, uh, feel free to grab that out, and that's on page 926. We'll be in Acts 17, verses 16 through 34 this morning. 
Today we're continuing our series in the book of Acts, and in our passage we're going to see how versatile Paul is as a missionary. He's really quite versatile. Uh, Mickey Mantle is one of the greatest baseball players in the history of the game, and he had a unique ability to hit both from the right side of the plate and also from the left side of the plate, a gift that I did not have. I wished I had growing up playing baseball. Could not do that. But if you were to look up a list of the greatest switch hitters in the history of the major leagues, Mickey Mantle will be at the top of every one of those lists. And you, don't look it up now, you can Google that later if you want. You could argue that Paul was one of, if not the best, switch hitter in the history of missions. Paul was effective at sharing the gospel with Jews and also with non-Jews. And in our text this morning, we're going to see Paul in Athens, one of the most influential cities in the history of the world. And we're going to see how Paul goes about sharing the gospel with people who are far from God. So before we jump into Acts, let me pray for us and ask for God's help as we read His Word this morning. So Father, we do ask for Your help. Uh, We want to see what You have for us in Your Word. We ask that Your Spirit would uh, open our eyes, enlighten our minds, help us to receive this Word. Would You open our eyes that we may behold the wondrous things in Your Word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was having coffee with one of our members recently, and as we sat there talking to one another, he looked me in the eyes, and he just, he shared about some of the doubts that he feels about how to live as a Christian in this cultural moment in which we find ourselves. He asked me if I ever grow weary of having to navigate the complexity of how we relate to the culture that is around us. And I have to admit, I do feel this weariness along with him. Whether it's the extreme individualism, the overconsumption, the sexual ethic, the anger and disrespect, or the badge of busyness that people wear with pride. In several different ways, when we evaluate and look at some of the cultural movements happening, this cultural moment in which we live, it stands in contrast to the vision of life that Jesus has given us. And on the one hand, you might feel at odds with the culture around you, but on the other hand, you, you want to resist the urge to just run away. We don't want to just run away. We're called to be witnesses in this world. And so as a church, through this 500 by 5,000 vision that we've been pursuing together, we have sought to grow as gospel witnesses this year. In fact, we have a gospel witness training today right after the church service to help equip you to do this because we need help. I need help. I'm going to go there and get some help because we need help to grow as gospel witnesses. Our prayer this year is that we would not be ashamed of the gospel because we know that it is the power of God for salvation. And as we've pursued this together, as we've pursued this aim, you might have felt intimidated by this goal, and it actually is probably multiplied in light of the tension that I've been describing. How do you live as a gospel witness in a culture that feels so at odds with the gospel? Well, our passage in Acts this morning is going to be a great help to us, because this is exactly what the, the sort of situation that Paul is walking into in Athens. This is the first extensive interaction that we're going to see in the book of Acts between Paul and a primarily non-Jewish audience. Now, our own cultural context is not the same as Paul's, and we should not flatten them as, as, and pretend that they're the exact same. They're not the exact same, but we will feel that tension. Paul felt that tension He was acutely aware that in Athens, he did not see the world like most people living in that city. And for that reason, I think we have a good example to learn from. And so here here will be the kind of outline and message of the sermon. What we're going to see is four steps 
to a missionary encounter with Jesus as the hero. Four steps to a missionary encounter with Jesus as the hero. And the end of that statement's really important because the sort of missionary encounter that we're talking about today is not possible if Jesus is not the hero of your story. And so let's begin in verse 16. Again, we're in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34, page 926 of those pew Bibles. It begins in verse 16. It says, Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. The first step to a missionary encounter with Jesus as the hero is to see and feel. Paul saw the idols all around him in Athens, and he felt irritated by the way that they held people captive. Now, a little more context for where we are. Verse 16 begins by telling us that Paul was waiting for them at Athens. So before we continue on with what's going on in Athens, we'll zoom out a little bit. Paul's waiting for someone that reminds us that this story we're reading is found within a much broader story. Our sermon is coming within a much broader series. Who is, waiting, who, or who is Paul waiting for? Well, he's waiting for Silas and Timothy. There's missionary companions. They're on this team together on this missionary journey. We read in verse 14 just a couple of weeks ago that Paul had left them in Berea. He had gone on ahead of them, and now they're on their way to join Paul in Athens. Paul and this missionary team, they're on a missionary journey that became known as Paul's second missionary journey. They began in this city called Antioch, and they traveled through several different cities, picking up additional team members along the way, and they've now arrived at Athens. You'll see this map as they go around the kind of north part of the Mediterranean Sea, across the Aegean Sea, and then down to Athens. And this missionary journey, it fits again within a much larger story as well within the book of Acts. As we read about this group of Jesus followers living as gospel witnesses in this ever-expanding geographic area. What began in Jerusalem is now reaching the ends of the earth. And today, we, as we read this as Jesus followers here in the 21st century, we are continuing this movement. A different time, a different place, but the same movement of people who believe that Jesus is Lord and live as his apprentice in all of life. On this journey, Paul here, he finds himself now in Athens. We'll zoom in on this story. This city was home to Plato and Socrates, to Pericles and Thucydides, this great city in Greece where all these great thinkers had come from. It had shrunk in some of its influence. In fact, by this time, Corinth was actually the leading city in Greece, but Athens maintained much of its former grandeur. As Paul is waiting for his companions in Athens, he cannot help but notice the idols all around him. Luke tells us that Paul saw that the idol or that the city was full of idols. And ancient descriptions of Athens at this time would actually testify that the marketplace was literally lined with different idols. Most of the impressive buildings in Athens would have been built as temples to one of the many gods within the Greek pantheon. Much of the art that he would have seen in Athens would would have portrayed one of the many deeds that had been done by one of the Greek gods. Everywhere he turned, Paul would have seen some type of an idol. Paul would get up in the morning, and if he stepped foot outside of wherever he was staying, idols would surround him. He would see them on his way to get a meal. As he walked the streets, they would cover or they'd be carved into buildings. 
As he went through the marketplace, someone surely would try and sell him some little trinket or some form of an idol. It would be impossible for Paul not to see them all over the city. And each one would remind him that most people in Athens did not worship the God of the Bible. Each idol would be reminders that the people in this city were being led astray. People in Athens did not understand that Jesus had come to save them. And so Paul felt irritated. He was provoked in his spirit, is what our translation says. This is more than just being a little bit distressed by all that he sees. He felt irritated by the sight of all these idols. He was infuriated by what he was seeing. And it isn't because there's this misplaced pride and arrogance in Paul. Paul is irritated because the true God of the world is not being worshipped. He has a righteous jealousy for God to be recognized and worshipped by the people of this city. And I think Paul is provoked by the way that so many people were being deceived by the practice of all these idols. When Paul gets to his speech in the Areopagus in verses 22 through 23, he's going to point out the foolishness in their practice. Why would they give their lives in worship to a God that can be contained by human hands and human imagination? If the gods that the Athenians worship are so small and simple that they can be made out of gold and silver and stone, crafted through the art and the imagination of human minds, that is not a God worthy of worship. Why worship a God that was created by humans? Paul's provoked in his spirit. If Jesus is the true hero of the story, then it should lead to this sort of irritation when he is not worshipped as the hero. Not a prideful irritation toward the Athenians, but a grieving sort of frustration that the world is not as it should be. And if you want to have a missionary encounter in this cultural moment, then you need to see and feel as well. You need to see the idols within the city, or the, the idols that are worshipped in our city, and we need to feel irritated when things are not as they should be. Here's what John Stott said about this passage. We do not speak like Paul because we do not feel like Paul. That is because we do not see like Paul. Now, before we can go further, I, I do want to give a little bit of a definition of what I mean when I say idol, because most of you probably did not pass markets filled with small idols made out of gold and silver and stone on your way to church this morning. Here's what Tony Marita says about idols. Here's a definition for us to have in our heads. An idol is anything to which we turn when we need something only Jesus can provide. Idols aren't just statues worshipped at shrines. They are substitute gods and functional saviors that supplant the true and living God in the human heart. Idols are anything that you look to for your ultimate joy and peace and salvation in life. In Athens, people look to small idols crafted by human hands to give them joy and peace and salvation. Today, we look toward other things. I think this is seen in what has become known as Blue Monday. In 2004, this name was coined by psychologist Dr. Cliff Arnold. Uh, he designated it as the third Monday in January, and this year it fell on January 17th. He actually developed an equation to determine the most depressing day of the year for most people. And here you can see the equation up on the screen. It seems a little complicated, but essentially he said is that weather plus debt minus your monthly salary times the time since Christmas and the time since failing our New Year's resolutions, divided by low motivational levels and the feeling of a need to take action. 
Now, this equation has not been scientifically validated, and some think of it as more of a joke or or kind of a ploy than necessarily a real equation, but I think it gets at something that we all feel. And it points to some of our deepest idols, because when the thing that we look to for joy and peace and salvation fails us, then we will be disappointed. Because who doesn't get to the end of the holidays and into the middle of January and feel a little bit sad? Some of it's totally reasonable, and expected. I already talked about some of the physical fatigue we might feel. But some parts also betray our idols. You get your credit card report from all the money that you spent around the holidays, money you probably couldn't afford to have spent. You feel the extra weight on your body from all the food that you ate around the holidays. You've already begun to fail at whatever New Year's resolutions that you set out to accomplish. Right? And even though we can all relate to the concept of Blue Monday, we can even sort of laugh it off as this funny confluence of several different factors. It points to deeper idols and deeper loves that are in our heart. Because we have this terrible habit in our culture of either neglecting our bodies or worshiping them. We use our money carelessly to fulfill material desires, or we hoard our money and are devastated when the bank account drops just a little too low. We put all of our hope and joy into the feeling of a party, and then when it's over, we feel the absence. And these are not all necessarily coming from bad things, but when good things become ultimate things, they become idols. And in 2,000 years' time, we have not gotten rid of idols. We've just traded in statues of silver and gold for chiseled abs and bloated bank accounts. And when you look around, there are idols everywhere. Here's the deal. This isn't just even theoretical. I was having a conversation with someone recently, and he shared with me that just a few years ago, he woke up and realized, and in his own words, this is what he said, that he needed to grow up. He and his friends had been content to just find the next good time and live without much meaning in life. And I began to share with him that I truly believe peace and purpose are only found in Jesus, and that young people are craving for it. But, but also finding it in all the wrong places. And it'd be easy for him to trade in the idol of a good time for the idol of making money or being successful at a job. And when this young man and I were texting recently, he shared that his work has not been as fulfilling lately. He wants more out of life. What he needs to be reminded of in that moment is that Jesus is the hero of the story. Because idols are all around us. If you want to have a missionary encounter with Jesus as the hero, then you need to see the idols around you, and you need to be provoked in your spirit that people are not worshiping Jesus, that the world is not as it should be. So what did Paul do next? Well, he went and he conversed. This is step two. Paul went and conversed. Let's keep reading in the story, verse 17. It says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Paul, he went. There are several different places that he went to. First, he went to the synagogue where the Jews and the devout persons were. It was Paul's strategy. We've talked about this several times. It was his strategy to go to wherever the Jews were living within a city. So, he went to the synagogue, and he reasoned with the Jews, and it says devout persons, which is just another name for non-Jewish people who wanted to worship God. They are sometimes called God-fearers, and Lydia from Philippi that we read about a couple weeks ago would be this sort of person. What's unique, though, about Paul's time in Athens is that we actually don't get much record about what happens as he's interacting with the Jews there. Most of the narrative is describing his interaction with non-Jews. 
So in addition to the synagogue, we see that he went to the marketplace. And we don't have a marketplace today. There's, there's really nowhere in our current society that would be quite like the Athenian marketplace of its day. But it would have been a place where commerce and entertainment and work and philosophical discussions were all taking place. It's, it's p- very possible that Paul actually went there to build and sell tents. We don't always see it in Acts, but it's kind of subtle. But Paul has a skill of tent making that helped to fund his missionary journeys. And whether he's making tents or not, Paul went to the place in Athens where life took place, where the citizens of the city gathered. For us today, this happens in all sorts of places, like our workplaces and at restaurants and coffee shops and gyms. It happens at malls and shopping centers and in the yards and the playgrounds of our neighborhoods. Paul went to the places where people were. He went to the synagogue. He went to the marketplace. And when he was there, he opened his mouth and he talked about Jesus. Sounds so simple, but yet it can feel so scary at times. Paul conversed. In verse 17, it says that he reasoned in the synagogue. In verse 18, it says that some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. In the marketplace, Paul interacted with people from these two prominent philosophical camps of the day. The Epicureans were materialists who sought pleasure. The Stoics were pantheists who sought order out of chaos. And I think their inclusion in the narrative is not necessarily about understanding their exact worldview. So I'm not going to say more about their worldview right now. But I think that together they represent two of the major thinkers of the day. I think Luke wants us to see that Paul interacted with people. He interacted with those who think differently and, and think in some of the primary different camps of the day. Paul engaged with them and will eventually reveal how their own way of seeing the world was not as coherent as they thought, and that Paul's understanding of the world was actually, it actually makes more sense for them. Paul must have conversed with them in a way that sparked their interest, because even though some of them dismissed him, others wanted to hear more. So we'll pick up in verse 18. It says, And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be preaching of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Some called Paul a babbler, which, just to be clear, is not a compliment. Okay, that wasn't a compliment to Paul at that point. Okay, others, though, wanted to hear more. And notice that one of the points of contention here is that Paul spoke of Jesus and the resurrection. Jesus was not an approved deity within Athens. You need to go through this process to have approval of your deities. So they called Jesus a foreign divinity. And this would have been confusing to them on many levels because a God who came to earth as a man and died and was resurrected, they would, would not have had a category for that. Stoics and Epicureans, they thought he was crazy, while others, they did want to learn more. So they brought him to the Areopagus, a place where people would gather and discuss and learn about different ideas. Because in Athens, as it tells us in verse 21, people spent their days telling and hearing something new. Now, as we learn from this missionary encounter by Paul, it should challenge us to ask ourselves if we converse about the things of Jesus. Paul went and he conversed. 
by the very nature of our lives, we are going to end up going to places as we live in this world. We'll go to marketplaces and workplaces and restaurants and playgrounds. That's not the difficult part of the step. It's the conversing part that can feel hard. We need to open our mouth and tell people that we worship Jesus if we're going to have a missionary encounter. And here's just a good initial question for assessment for you this morning. Do the people in my life know that I worship Jesus as Lord? Do they know that I worship Him? You could even write down some of the names of people in your life. Do they know that I worship Jesus as Lord? And I'm talking about your coworkers, your neighbors, your family, your hairstylist. How many of those people know what you think about all sorts of other things? They might know what you think about Black Lives Matter or global warming or immigration or sexual ethics or marijuana, but they don't know that Jesus is Lord of your life. I'm not talking about getting a sandwich board out and going to work tomorrow with a megaphone, right? But in your conversations with others, do they know that you think Jesus is the hero of the story? And not just your story, but the story of the world, and that Jesus wants to be the hero and Lord of their story as well. Well, in response to the gospel message, the people in Athens here, they wanted to hear more. So the next scene in our text is Paul speaking at the Areopagus. So let's read in verses 22 through 32. We're going to see there that Paul connected and confronted. That's step three. He connected and he confronted. Luke does not include the entire speech, but we get a pretty lengthy summary. And in this speech, Paul does these two things. He connects with them and he confronts them. When we have a missionary encounter with the culture around us, it can be easy to err in several different ways in this dynamic. If we connect with people but do not confront then we'll find ourselves over-contextualizing the message of the gospel and accommodating to our hearers. If, on the other hand, we confront, but we do not connect, then we will under-contextualize the message, and we will end up aggravating our hearers unnecessarily. If we do neither, if we don't connect or confront, then we're just simply ignoring those who could hear. Our aim as gospel witnesses should be to both connect and confront the culture around us. And if we do that, then with wisdom, we will be able to reject what needs to be rejected, receive what needs to be received, and redeem what ought to be redeemed. Paul is masterful at doing this in his speech. Now, I'm going to read his speech in its entirety, and then I'll point out a few principles that are helpful for us to see. So, verse 22 says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, For we are indeed his offspring. 
Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. At several points in this speech, Paul, he connects with them. He connects with his hearers by acknowledging their desire to know God. One of the first things we'll observe, Paul acknowledges their desire to know God. He begins by acknowledging that the men of Athens are very religious in verse 22. He mentions their altar to the unknown God in verse 23. He mentions that God made humans to seek God in verse 27. And Paul even quotes from one of their own poets who have said that we are indeed God's offspring in verse 28. Paul connects with them by affirming the many ways that they have sought to know and to understand God. But Paul also confronts them by pointing out their difficulty in knowing God. Therefore, as Paul says in verse 23, what they worship as unknown, Paul's going to proclaim to them. And he especially points out, I've mentioned this already, their foolishness in their religious practices. They acknowledge that they have come from God. They are God's offspring in verse 29. And yet they worship God by, or try to worship God by containing him in temples and making idols out of gold and silver and stone. But if humans were created by God, this is Paul's logic, if humans are created by God, then why are humans creating gods? As if he could be formed by the art and the imagination of humanity. There is a necessary humility built into the Christian faith when we acknowledge that we cannot find our own way to God, but that God, in His grace, has revealed Himself to us through His own self-initiative. If not for God making Himself known through His Word and through the person of Jesus, we would still be blindly feeling our way toward God and trying to make gods in our own image. See, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were, were accusing Paul of foolishness because he worshiped a God that came as a man and then died and was resurrected. But Paul is pointing out the foolishness of their own religious system, that, that they worship gods created through their own imagination. And then, after Paul has connected with them in their desire to know God and confronted them for their difficulty in knowing God, Paul points out that God has made himself known. In verse 30, Paul says, the times of ignorance are over. God is calling all people everywhere to repent, and he's given the assurance that the kingdom has come because the man whom God has appointed, Jesus, was raised from the dead. The solution to the inconsistency that Paul is pointing out in the Athenians' worldview is Jesus. He's the one who came to make God known, and this is validated by the resurrection. See, we live in a culture that is 2,000 years removed from the Athens that Paul visited, and yet the people of our day are still very religious. They may not claim religion as part of their lives, but they are religious nonetheless. People are still given to allegiances and to commitments, whether it is the religion of politics or the worship of healthy bodies. People are religious in every way. Even though some people will not admit that they are religious, they will at least acknowledge that they are spiritual. According to a Pew study in 2017, 27% of Americans now identify as spiritual but not religious. 
And in total, at least 82% of Americans identify as either religious, spiritual, or both. Minneapolis in the 21st century is certainly different than Athens in the first century, but like Paul, we can have a missionary encounter with Jesus as the hero, even when we feel at odds with the culture around us. We must find points of connection and opportunities to confront. We might connect with our coworkers' desire for meaning and purpose in life, and then we can help them see that this actually comes from a creator, and they will not find it if not worshiping that creator. Or we might connect with our neighbor's compassion for those who experience injustice in our society, and then we can point to the fact that our desire for justice comes because God has built in us a longing for His true shalom peace in the world. Imagine with me my friend named John going to work tomorrow, and rather than have his typical conversations with his coworkers, he takes time to see, to see the idols that they worship, objects of worship that will never satisfy. And then John feels provoked in his spirit by his desire for them to have the peace and the purpose of Jesus. And as he's there, he begins to have different sorts of conversations with different sorts of minds. He starts to ask questions that get to his coworkers' deeper longings. He asks even simple questions like, why? What a magical question to ask if you want to get at some of the deeper longings of the heart. He, he might ask some questions like, how did that make you feel? He starts to probe a little more, to understand their heart. And as he begins to get to their heart, he will find opportunities to connect with them over their desire to know God, even if his co-workers will not necessarily put it that way. And as God's Spirit leads, John will be able to confront his co-workers about the ways that their current system of worship will not satisfy by pointing out that Jesus is the only true source of life and happiness. And whether it's John at his office tomorrow or a father with his kids at the playground or a college student with their roommate, we can all have a missionary encounter with Jesus as the hero. And before you dismiss this too quickly, before you let yourself off the hook because you just don't think you're very good at it, you're certainly not as good as Paul, you tell yourself, or that you won't be as successful as him, let's be realistic about the results. Step four of a missionary encounter with Jesus as the hero is that we should expect that people will both reject the message and accept the message. Paul did not see converts every time. In fact, I think the record in Acts would suggest that most people Paul shared with did not, but we also see that some did, and with a success rate that was probably lower than most baseball players' batting average, Paul became one of the greatest missionaries of all time. Give up the notion that you need to see a convert, or that you need to see convert upon convert to be a faithful gospel witness. Be realistic about the results. Some will accept the gospel message, most will not. So don't make your standard a perfect presentation or a mass conversion. Not even Paul gets that. Verse 32, this shows how people began to reject the message. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. When Paul got to the point in his message where he was telling them about the resurrection of Jesus, they could no longer tell what he was saying. They began to mock him as a crazy man. People still today struggle to believe that Jesus really did rise from the dead because it breaks all the material notions we have about this world. And the modern mind, shaped by all the supposed progress of the Enlightenment, still struggles to accept a resurrected Jesus. People will mock you for believing the sort of things that the Bible teaches. Don't be surprised. 
if you have honored them by connecting with them, and I mean actually connecting with them, not just arrogantly have all these outsiders figured out, sort of connecting. If you have shown them the respect and the dignity as a fellow human created in God's image, if you both connect and confront in this sort of way, then you can receive their mocking and not be surprised. But if they're going to reject the message, make sure they're actually rejecting the message of the gospel. In this case, they could not, in this case, in Acts, they could not bring themselves to believe in the resurrection. They rejected, at least they understood the true gospel message. Paul had honored them enough for them to reject the message. People reject the true gospel because you have faithfully presented the true gospel message to them. Don't have them reject the gospel because what you ask moralism or you were unnecessarily rude or dead. Some will reject the message, but not all. Some will accept. Or at a minimum, people will want to hear more. As we go on, it says, but others said, we will again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Luke here, he mentions two different people by name, one even being the Areopagite. Some accuse Paul of, some, some contemporary commentators will accuse Paul of failing in Athens because there weren't more converts or because he didn't send a letter to Athens like he does to Philippi or Thessalonica. But that would fail to understand how the gospel spreads and what our job is as gospel witnesses. We don't control or manipulate the outcome of a conversion. In Acts 1.8, Jesus tells his disciples that they would be his witnesses. That's our work, to give witness to the work of God in the world. And, and so, as we do so, some will reject the message and some will accept it. Now, even though we may feel at odds with the culture around us, we have this example from Paul, how to have a missionary encounter with Jesus as the hero. And if we're going to connect and confront with our culture, then Jesus must be the hero of our story. It is not possible to do what we've been talking about this morning if Jesus is not the hero of your story. Because if we're going to see and feel the idols of our culture, we must take the time to see and feel the idols that we are prone to worship. If we're going to tell people about Jesus as the hero, then we must truly believe that he is worthy of our allegiance and full devotion. So in the end, whether or not you follow the four steps perfectly, that isn't as important as knowing that beneath every step is a deep commitment to the true hero of everyone's story. And so as you leave today, don't just try and memorize the four steps that I've outlined. Examine your heart. Ask yourself if you're worshiping Jesus like that. Because if you are, it will fuel your work as a gospel witness. And if you are not, then no four steps will overcome your lack of worship. And that's what we're going to do right now, together. We're going to worship our hero, Jesus, through the bread and the cup. When we take communion together, we're reminding ourselves that Jesus made a way to God. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.